Has God ever asked you to do something daft? A little strange. You know, like throw common sense out the window, daft. Take Jackie Pullinger, for example, though a bit extreme. You may have heard of her story in the book Chasing the Dragon. Jackie Pullinger wanted to be a missionary, but was turned down by every organisation she approached. You see, she was single. She was 22. She had a music degree, but no experience. And so no mission organisation was willing to put her on the mission field. So she was a bit discouraged, and she went to her minister, who I think was very daft, because he said, Jackie, if you think God's calling you, buy a one-way ticket on a boat for as far as you can afford, and while you're on the trip, pray that God will show you where to get off. Anyway, Jackie had a dream, and Hong Kong came in the dream, and so she took her pastor's advice and bought a one-way ticket that went through Hong Kong, and when she got there, she felt this inner confirmation. She got off the boat with $10 in her hand and knew no one. And not surprisingly, she had trouble with customs, with immigration, until she remembered that she had a uh, a godparent's son was a local policeman in Hong Kong, and that was enough. And there she was, a young girl in 1960s Hong Kong, knowing no one, with no finances, wondering, God, why have you called me here? It's a very daft thing for God to do, isn't it? And it's very similar with Jeremiah in this land. This is the most stupidest, daftest land deal that you could imagine. So we're going to find out why. And Jeremiah, well, he wanted to know why he had to buy this land. And he asked God, and God replied in this most wonderful answer, full of grace and mercy, that has quite a significant impact on you and I today. So let's pick up Jeremiah's story in chapter 32. And at the beginning of chapter 32, we find that he's a prisoner in the king's courtyard. Now, that's a change of circumstances from when we last looked at Jeremiah. So what's happened? Well, the king of Babylon is besieging Jerusalem again. Seven years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had conquered Jerusalem. He'd laid siege and taken a couple of years But eventually he broke through. He set up a puppet king and he started to extract large taxes. Now, seven years later, and that puppet king has rebelled, stopped paying taxes to Babylon and is declared an independent country. Well, the king of Babylon will have none of it. So he marches his troops out again, conquers Israel. And again, it's just Jerusalem that is holding out. Why? Because it has such natural defences, plus they have been fortified by the king and his troops. But Nebuchadnezzar is not worried. Last time it took a long siege, but he won. He knows he will win again. So Jeremiah is trapped in the city. And what he's telling the people is to surrender. He's saying, give up, go over to the king of Babylon, for this is God's judgment. For years, Jeremiah had saying, if you continue to worship idols, if you continue to disobey God's word, I will send the king of Babylon to destroy this nation. And he did it once seven years ago, and Jeremiah is saying, well, he's doing it again. This is God's judgment. Give up. Now, the king is more than annoyed when he hears this. In his mind, this is treason. 
Jeremiah is undermining the morale of his troops and the ability for them to hold out. So the king arrests Jeremiah and puts him in his prison, the courtyard. However, God's word easily bypasses these prison walls. And so we read in verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. This is while he's in prison. Hanamel, son of Shulam, your uncle is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and your duty. And God's saying, he's giving Jeremiah the heads up, saying, any moment now your cousin's going to walk through and offer you his land. You're the closest relative, so you need to buy it. Now there's a background here that's helpful. Now God's law was very clear that land needed to stay within the family line. So if you needed to sell some land to pay off some debt or, or to do some building project or whatever, you had to sell it to someone in your family line. There was a special name for that, and it's called Kingsman Redeemer. You were to redeem that land on behalf of the family. And so because uh, this is his cousin, Jeremiah's cousin, there's a clear legal obligation from the word of God for him to buy it. However, if Jeremiah didn't have the money or whatever, he could say, well, try the cousin down the road. So there were options as long as it was sold in the family land. So anyway, without delay, uh, the cousin turns up at prison and says, buy the field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. And though Jeremiah does not understand, Jeremiah does not delay. He is obedient. Verse 8, I knew this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Ananoth from my cousin. And there's some really interesting legal transactions that carries on there to make sure that it was witnessed and the deed was preserved for a long period of time. Now, I've mentioned that this transaction doesn't make any sense. It's daft. Now, why is this a bad real estate deal? It's because the Babylonians had already occupied all of Israel except for Jerusalem. So it was a stupid deal because the Babylonians had already confiscated it. So here was Jeremiah in prison buying land he could never use because the Babylonians already had it. It was a stupid deal for two counts. I'm in prison and even if I was out of prison I can't do anything with it because it's occupied. And Jeremiah knows this. He knows that even though he owns it legally, it's doing him no good. And so he goes to God. He asks God, why on earth have I bought this stupid piece of land? And we have here a prayer, and a prayer is in from verses 17 through to 25, and it's a wonderful example of prayer. Very simple. He spends a lot of time praising God, and then right at the end of the prayer, we have a one-sentence reference to the land deal. Fifteen times Jeremiah praises God because God is special or because of his acts of kindness. And just the first verse or so of the prayer goes, starts like this. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outreached arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands. And that's just three out of the 15 times that Jeremiah praises God. All this is by way of a very respectful introduction to what's on his mind. The last sentence of that prayer goes like this, verse 25. 
And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Jeremiah is a little bit indirect here. But his sentiment of his prayer is something like this. Lord, you're amazing. Nothing is too hard for you. You told us that the Babylonians would come and they have. You're amazing. But why did you make me buy the land? It's useless. God's answer is full of mercy and grace. First of all, God reminds Jeremiah, not that Jeremiah's forgotten, but he reminds Jeremiah that the siege and eventual destruction of Jerusalem is deserved. The people, God's people have provoked him. How? Idol worship. Oppressing the poor, forsaking God's word, and even sacrificing their children to idols. No wonder God's judgment is at the door, literally, and thoroughly deserved. However, although God's people deserve no quarter, no mercy, in God's reply to Jeremiah, he says very clearly that after judgment, God will pour out his favor on his people. And there's a wonderful passage. I'll just pick up some of it from verse 38. They will be my people. This is after judgment and after restoration. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them a singleness of heart in action so they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. And notice all this outpouring of favor and goodness and blessing is centered upon the everlasting covenant. God will make a a new and everlasting covenant. Now, the last time we looked at Jeremiah, uh, we looked at him talking about the new covenant when it was to those that, that were already in exile. Uh, here God's talking to his people about an everlasting covenant for those that are, that are still on the land. And so just a quick recap on what a covenant is. A covenant is a legal agreement between two parties and there are stipulations that each party must follow and if they don't follow these obligations, there are penalties and it's all written into a legal contract. But with God, there is much warmth and affection on his side. It's not a sterile legal arrangement. And we need to think marriage covenant and not, say, a housing covenant on a subdivision that we might have or have to sign off on. And there are four covenants we see in the Old Testament before the new and everlasting one. And of these covenants, old covenants, it's the one with Moses that's at stake here. This is where the issue is. In this covenant, God promised to dwell amongst his people. He promised, I will be your God, I will dwell with you. And that, first of all, in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And the symbol of this covenant is the law. Sadly, time and time again, God's people broke this covenant. God continued to send prophets like Jeremiah to invite people back, but God's people refused. It had got so bad that they even started to sacrifice children. So God's punishment was just and was no surprise because of all the warnings. What is a surprise is that after judgment, God is promising an everlasting covenant. And it's a different kind of covenant because it's not an outward compliance, 
but an inward transformation. And this is going to make all the difference in the world. Verse 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing them good. I will rejoice in doing them good. So there's a sense where, in a totally undeserved way, God's people who had found themselves or turned away from God and were in the blackest of dark spaces, God, after judgment, will extend mercy. And praise God, we live in the time of this new covenant, something that Jeremiah proclaimed, longed for, but he never saw. But we live in these times of mercy and grace. And, of course, the new covenant was inaugurated by Jesus the night before he was betrayed. And we know these words so well from Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so Jesus announced the new covenant on the night he before he was crucified. And on the day he was crucified, on Good Friday, on the cross, the covenant was sealed by his blood. The everlasting covenant, the new covenant that Jeremiah is talking about, involves our hearts and minds being renewed from the inside out. And the symbol is not the law, but the symbol is the blood of the Lamb. You may notice this feature over here. Uh, Let me just spend a moment talking about this. Last time I preached on the new covenant, Les came up to me afterwards and said, I've got an idea. And so here we have the tablets in the yellow, the two tablets where the Ten Commandments were written. And they are a symbol of the old covenant. However, out from there, we have the red and the white flowers. And the red represents the blood of Jesus. The symbol of the new covenant. And the white is Christ's resurrection. So I think there's this wonderful, pleasing sort of combination of the new covenant with the blood of Christ and his resurrection, breaking through the law, the stone tablets. And by God's grace, we live in the time of the new covenant. Isn't that special? Really special. And this passage in Jeremiah has a really important insight to this new covenant. It's not just like, well, the covenant with Moses is dead and buried. Uh, No, the Ten Commandments still apply, but we are under the blood of Christ. But like I said, we can learn from Jeremiah what's happening here. And and the key thing for us is to realize is that God's people were under judgment, just judgment. They were sacrificing their children and doing all sorts of despicable things. And so they were under siege. And judgment was about to fall. And after that judgment, where they were either killed or taken off to exile, God would later restore the land and introduce a new covenant. And it's the same with us. Before Christ, each one of us is under siege and awaiting judgment because of the blackness of our heart, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, because not one of us can stand before a holy God. We are no better than the Israelites under siege, who were waiting for judgment where it was thoroughly deserved. And each one of us 
is just as deserving of judgment, except except when the judgment came, it did not fall on us, but it fell on Christ. And because that judgment that was deserved fell on Christ, we now enjoy all the benefits of the new covenant. So historically with Jeremiah, we have the siege around the city. Any day now, the Babylonians will break through, utterly decimate the city, destroy the temple, carry off the people to captivity. Judgment. They deserved it. But then came God's mercy with restoration to the land. And we're the same. Without Christ, each one of us is in siege and deserving of God's judgment. But because the judgment fell on Christ, we now have access and live under the blood of Jesus and that new covenant. Isn't that wonderful good news? It's wonderful news, really. And we see this kind of played out in the story of Jeremiah. But what about the land? (laughs) Let's get back to Jeremiah. Remember, he he bought the land and he said, Lord, what a waste of money. (laughs) During those times of uncertainty and military conquest, cash was king. It was better to have silver in your pocket than land that was occupied. And so God, once he says that, my mercy and my new covenant will follow the judgment, he says, and... The land you bought is a symbol of my mercy. How is that? Chapter 32, verse 44, God says, Fields will be bought. This is in the time of the new covenant. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory, because I will restore their fortune, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah buying the land is this significant, symbolic act to the people of God. Because Jeremiah would keep on saying, repent, turn away from your idol worship, turn away from oppressing the poor, turn to God, because judgment is about to fall. The Babylonians will take this city. And the people will say, well, why did you buy that land, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah will say, because God's mercy will follow. And one day that land that is useless now will be worth a lot. And people will buy and sell and prosper as they live under the new covenant. And so straight away here have a powerful object lesson. In the same way that this sculpture here is quite quite significant, isn't it? It's quite moving. Yeah, well, imagine if I just said, well, I've just spent $100,000 buying a piece of land to make a point in my sermon. I'd imagine your initial response was, we're paying you too much. But you know what I mean. Whatever point I was making, you'd pay attention. You might think I'm foolish or not, but you'd be paying attention. So Jeremiah would keep preaching and they'd keep wondering why did he buy that land? And he would say, because God's mercy and forgiveness will follow judgment. And that's what is ours on the cross. Because Jesus was judged for us, punished for us, we now live in his mercy. So, What are the applications? What are the take-homes from us from this rather obscure story of Jeremiah? Well, there's three things we can take home from this. First of all, God's word cannot be imprisoned. Remember back to the beginning of the story, the king thought, if I put Jeremiah in in prison, he will stop speaking God's word. And the people, they will settle down. But no, God's word got through the prison cells and God's word got out of the prison cells. And it is the same today. 
The world and Satan will try and lock up God's word. They will try and intimidate you and I so that we do not speak God's word. We do not share our faith. We do not even read God's word. But where we remain faithful, God's word cannot be imprisoned. It cannot be walled up or walled in. As we remain faithful, we will receive God's word by the Holy Spirit and we will be able to give out God's word by the Holy Spirit. Don't listen to the lies of the devil, the lies of the world that say this is useless and a waste of time. As we cling to Christ and his word, he can use us just like he used Jeremiah. Second application for today, the second take home is we have a model prayer, a wonderful model prayer in Jeremiah 32. Scattered through the Bible are various prayers that we can use to help our prayer life. I mean, if we're honest, praying is one of the most difficult things that we can do as Christians. You know, the Spirit's willing, but the distractiveness of our mind is serious, isn't it? I mean, it can be only three or four minutes before you're starting to think about what's the lunch or whatever. But these model prayers are wonderful helps to us. And in Jeremiah, we see a huge amount of praise to God before he brought what was worrying him. Now, God loves it when we bring what's worrying us to him in prayer. What we have modeled here is to spend time thinking about how wonderful God is, how faithful he has been to us, to think of some of the stories where he's just blessed people in the Bible. Spend time thanking God and praising him and then bring your worries and your anxieties. And you'll find that most of the prayer is over by the time then because you have focused on the person who we should focus on. Our worries and concerns are important, but let's surround those concerns with praise just like Jeremiah did. And our final take-home for today is obedience before understanding. Now, I don't know if you've heard of this principle. It's quite an important principle in our work with God. Obey first and understanding follows. Obey first and understanding follows. From the get-go, Jeremiah knew this land deal was stupid, was daft. And he thought, well, why am I doing it? But he obeyed first, and it was only after he understood. And that's a principle. Now, there are many times when God asks us to do something, and we kind of understand what's happening, and it's not, not a brainer, no brainer. But every now and again, God will ask you to do something that appears stupid or daft, to you and everyone else. And God is testing. He's testing you like Jeremiah to see whether you will obey him, even if you don't understand. We love to have everything mapped out. We love to have every I dotted and every T crossed. But there are times when God will say, no, I just want you to do this. Think of Jackie Pullinger, who's sensing a strong sense of call to the mission field, but having no resources, being accepted by no organization, having no money or experience, went. And it was only after she got there that she understood that what God wanted her to do. If you read the book Chasing the Dragon, what a fabulous book. She worked with drug addicts, and God blessed her ministry, and there were countless drug addicts in the 60s, 70s, 80s that through her ministry were free, put on their feet. And then she felt God call her to work with the prostitutes that were trapped in that awful trade. And she had a very powerful ministry amongst the prostitutes in Hong Kong setting them free. 
Now, if she had sat in England and waited until God had told her everything she needed to do, no, she would still be in England waiting. And all those people would not have been blessed. But what Jackie did was that she went on the faith that she had and God gave her the understanding afterwards. Jeremiah was the same. I don't want to buy this land. What a waste of money. I'll just tell my cousin to go to to uh, another cousin down the road. But he knew it was God's will, and he did it. And it was only afterwards that he understood. So that's the third take-home challenge today. Scares me, witless. <laughs> but there have been times in my life when I have felt God say to do something without me understanding, and I have never regretted it. So what have we learned today? Well, we've looked at Jeremiah buying some land. Very foolish economic deal. But God called him to be obedient, and Jeremiah was. And Jeremiah brought his worry, his angst, and prayer, and we've seen this wonderful model of prayer. And then we've seen three applications for us. God's word cannot be imprisoned. We've seen a model prayer, and we've revisited that principle of obedience before understanding. But most of all, we've seen the work of Christ on the cross again, where his work smashed the law and its hold over us, and out by his blood and his resurrection, we are now under a new covenant. The judgment that we deserve fell on him so that we can be sons and daughters of the living God. And that's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray.